Amen. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat? Good morning. Good morning. All right. We're high in the middle of July. You guys just got back from vacation or are getting ready for vacation, so I know you're focused. Hey, if you're new, go ahead and fill out the Connect card on your seat. We'd love to get to know you a little bit more and bless you with a gift on your way out. Also a reminder to sign up. We have two uh, kids camps coming up. We have a VBS at the end of July and a STEAM camp in the first week of August. Uh, Those things are going to be awesome, so invite your friends, invite your neighbor's friends, invite the kids that are in your neighborhood, invite everybody in your family. Okay, come join us. Make good use of your summer by investing uh, the Word of God into the lives of your children in a variety of ways. So you can sign up for those things online or on the newsletter. Remember, you got to be on the newsletter, okay? We're not going to announce everything. I'm not going to announce everything. Uh, we're not going to focus on that in a service. So be on the newsletter. You'll get everything you need to know way ahead of time. You'll be on top of it. You can sign up for that on the website or in the lobby. All right, now we got to get down to business because we got lots to cover today. The message today is about how to live under authority. And everyone said, yeah, I love that. It's my favorite thing to learn about. I love authority. I love it when people tell me what to do. I love submitting my own desires to someone else's. This is great. Uh, I'm going to bless you this morning uh, with some more encouragement in this way. Hopefully give you a different perspective. Uh, But there's two things before we jump into the text I just want you to know we're going to need to do today. The first, uh, because of what the text says, we're going to have to address, and I want to help you think through the bigger question about the Bible and slavery. So we're going to do that for a few minutes. Uh, Maybe some of you have misconceptions or just misunderstandings or just need more clarity. Uh, Maybe some of you uh, have a really wrong understanding about what Christians or the Bible has to say about this, and that might be keeping you away from putting your faith in Jesus. Wherever you might be, I want to help you understand what the Bible says about slavery. And then the second thing we're going to do is then apply the text to your everyday life. What does it look like to live as one under authority? So we got to do both those things today, so that means we got to get to it. So... Whether you have big questions about the Bible and slavery or whether you just don't like your boss, all right, I have something to say to all of you. And whether you have authority problems at all at any level, which is all of us, okay, every single one of you, every single one of us, myself included, uh, the Lord has something to say to us this morning about how how we should live. So go ahead and open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. Let's go. Let's hear from the Lord this morning. Verse 5, we're going to read through verse 9. It says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So the first thing I want to do with this text is just address the broader broader question. Uh, Really, the question is, does the Bible support slavery? What does the Bible have to say about slavery? What does that look like for us? And there's lots to be said. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to say nearly all the things that need to be said, but my goal today is to basically give you three things. Think about it like legs to a stool, Okay? You need at least three legs so you can sit on a stool and be stable. All right? So that's my goal. It's just to give you three reasons about why you should understand this the right way, about what the Bible has to say about slavery that can allow you to be stable in your understanding about the Bible and slavery. And then if you have more questions or would like more resources, there's a ton out there. There's lots of good answers for these things, lots of good explanations for you. 
So please ask, I'd be happy to recommend resources. So once again, that's my caveat. I'm not gonna be able to say everything that needs to be said about it. But I hope to give you three important things that hopefully stick with you. All right, so does the Bible support slavery? Well, the first answer is no, okay? No, it does not. Now, here's what I want you to understand about it. There's three things. The first is this. Uh, Biblical slavery was very different than modern slavery. So this is just the first category you gotta understand. If you're gonna understand the Bible well, when the Bible's talking about slavery, it does not have uh, the kind of American stealing of people, sailing of them, forced labor, all that. It doesn't have that in mind, all right, as a general note. The biblical slavery is very different than modern slavery, which is important because we can't take uh, the word slavery in our minds and then shove it into what Paul's talking about and then expect Paul to talk about the same things we would want him to talk about because it wasn't that, all right? So you gotta understand that. Now, I'm just gonna go through, I have three reasons, but within every reason, I have a bunch of reasons, all right? And so I'm just gonna through it. You probably won't be able to keep up with me. I'm not saying them slow enough for you to write everything down, but I have this available if you would like the manuscript or I have a PDF on these things. I'm happy to give it to you, but I'm gonna give you all the reasons quickly uh, and we're not gonna, we're not gonna uh, sit on them very long. So, and you can go back. This is obviously on podcast or YouTube if you wanna try to write it down later. The first reason for this, so the biblical slavery is not modern slavery, it's different. Why? Well, the first reason is it's not race-based slavery. It wasn't race-based slavery in the Bible. When Paul's talking about uh, your conditions of slavery, he's not thinking race-based. People were not enslaved because of their race. Just plain and simple, that's not what was happening back then. Obviously, it's very different from our understanding of modern slavery. The second reason why biblical slavery is different than modern slavery is how people became a slave. So obviously, within modern slavery, the primary way is stealing, capturing, kidnapping of people, selling them into slavery. This is not the modern, this is not the common way uh, that people became a slave back in the Bible times. Some examples are the first way, uh, a way people would come into slave is prisoners of war. And so obviously nations would be fighting against one another. They would come into slavery that way. Uh, The most common way people came into slavery was to pay off a debt. So they became slaves because it was their last resort to pay off debts they couldn't pay to creditors. It's like debt prison, you know, like debt jail, right? You have to put yourself into slavery because your debt is too high. Uh, you can't just claim bankruptcy and walk away, you know, like people can these days. Uh, you had to have, something had to be done about it. So to pay off their debt to creditors, um, another way people sold themselves into slavery was to have job security. So it was a legitimate means. It was almost like a legitimate uh, means to have security and job, uh, to job security. And then, so those are, so prisoners of war, to pay off your debt to creditors and to have job security. And then within that, then by first century BC, right, by the time that we're kind of reading about, most of the people now in slavery were born into it because their parents were enslaved for various reasons, and so now they're born into slavery. And so now people are being raised in a condition of slavery. So that's how people became a slave. Now once again, I'm gonna say this at the end as well. None of this is saying that there's a good reason or slavery's positive in any sense whatsoever. I'm just making the distinction for you to understand what Paul's talking about, what the Bible's talking about, and what uh, your understanding of modern slavery, to make the distinctions, and then that'll help you kind of walk through it a little bit more. Uh, Obviously, all forms of slavery of any kind are not good. Now, number three, something you must understand, this is three, you know, within the first reason, biblical slavery was different than modern. The third reason this is true is that the Bible explicitly condemns modern slavery in both the Old and New Testaments. This is very helpful and very straightforward. When you think of modern slavery, slave trading, enslaving people against their will, all these different things, the Bible is explicitly, without any nuance whatsoever, condemns that straight up. 
Let me give you a bunch of verses on this. All right, I'm just gonna brrr through it, remember? First Timothy 1.10, list enslavers and slave traders as those who live contrary to sound doctrine. So the, the very category you and I have in mind with American-based slavery is enslaving and slave trading. And the Bible literally lists those people as bad and contrary to sound doctrine. Exodus 21.16 also says it straight out. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's Exodus 21.16, which is as clear as it can get. You cannot steal a man, sell a man, and if if you do that, it's a punishment worthy of death. So that's Old Testament. I just gave you a New Testament reference in 1 Timothy. Exodus 21.20, the punishment for for a master killing a slave is death. Slave wasn't like property like that that you could just kill without consequences. Same punishment you get for killing anybody you get for a master killing a slave, Exodus 21, 20. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 18 teaches us that Jewish slavery couldn't last more than seven years and the masters had to provide things needed upon release. So even Jewish slavery, which would be slavery within the Old Testament people of God, uh, it couldn't last more than seven years and when the seven years was up, the master had to provide everything needed for release. Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14 teaches us that slavery was an offering of refuge to foreigners fleeing bad conditions. It was a way to find a place to live, a way to find safety, and a way to get out of a really bad situation. Exodus 21, 6, 26 teaches us that if you injure a slave, he or she goes free. So obviously, the Bible very explicitly condemns modern slavery through all these different categories, and you need to understand it. Okay, the final reason under this first reason is that a first century bondservant and a 19th century slave are not the same thing at all, which is why the word here, the Greek word is doulos in verse five, it is better translated as bondservant instead of slave because a bondservant in the first century is dramatically different than a slave in the 19th century. So when you read the word slave and you read it through your filter, you're gonna start applying things to the text that aren't there. So we use the word bondservant to give it a better understanding. Let me give you some reasons why a first century bondservant is different than 19th century slave. A first century bondservant could normally earn their freedom by the age of 30. They were protected by the law. They even owned private property. Private property. Uh, they had significant responsibilities as teachers, lawyers, physicians, managers, just important roles in society. So therefore, because of these things, as you read about New Testament, when Paul's writing to people within the context of New Testament slavery, uh, This isn't a perfect analogy, but it is somewhat in the right direction that it's more like an employer and employee relationship or even more like the military where you willfully go into it and then once you're in, you have certain restrictions on your life. You can't just get out or just do whatever you want. You have to live under a certain level of authority regardless of whether you like it or not. So that is a better common analogy for what that might look like in New Testament times. Now, to say all of that to help you understand the distinction, but to still make it clear, slavery was a bad position to be in. It is not a positive institution of any kind whatsoever. And obviously, people in that day still were abusing these things and still, obviously, uh, stealing people and doing all that which the Bible condemns. So that's just the broad categories you need to understand for that first. So that's the first leg on the stool. You just gotta understand biblical slavery is different than modern slavery. And when Paul's writing to people in biblical slavery, he is not writing to them in the context of modern slavery. So we cannot apply our personal context of the word slavery to the Bible's use of the word slavery. It wouldn't be right. The second reality that you need to write down, the second leg on your stool to understand what the Bible says about slavery is this, is that New Testament writers were helping people learn how to manage their current reality 
while also pursuing the ideal reality. This is important. New Testament writers, they're writing to people in slavery. Why are they not just saying start a revolution and get out? Why are they not saying that? Well, here's why. Because they're managing, they're learning how to manage their current reality while also pursuing the ideal reality. You have to not miss out on the fact that Paul's words, they may not seem radical to us, but they were radical to them. So Paul is on the absolute fringes of a revolution in terms of the kinds of ways he's talking to slaves and masters. Very radical in the first place. Now, he's also helping them manage their situation as it is. Uh, in light of this, we have to remember as well, as Christian history and even the history of the world unfolds, it is actually the gospel and Christianity itself that provides the framework by which slavery is overtaken, right? The reason why we don't have modern slavery, at least in the context that we know, even though obviously lots of people, this is still happening, sex slaves, all that, all over the world, right? This is still happening. But the reason why some of the different situations that were more prevalent in the past aren't prevalent now is precisely because of Christianity. The thinking of Christians and the framework that we're gonna see later about the image of God and how to value all human beings. Uh, and so we have to take that into, you guys don't know William, William, William Wilberforce, which is the primary, primary person maybe fighting against this was a Christian. Uh, and so you gotta understand that. So what is Paul doing? Why does the Bible not just say, hey, get out, this is bad, everybody stop being slaves, the end. Well, he's helping them manage their current situation and living for the ideal situation. Let me give you an example. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, Paul basically says, if you can get free, then be free. It is better to be free, live free. But if not, here's how you live as a Christian in your current situation. It's not like Paul has a magic pen and he can just write, be free, and then when the word gets out, all the slaves go free. So he's trying to help them learn. Like, what does it look like to manage my situation that I'm in now as a Christian? Now, this is important, not just for them, but for us, and something you need to consider about your life, and what Paul's trying to teach them, even in the midst of a terrible situation, is that your situation does not limit what God can do or define your identity. This is what he's writing to them in the midst of being a slave, and he's empowering them by saying, you don't need a change, although a change of situation would be great and preferable and right. You don't need a change of situation to be free and to live the life God has called you to live. God is not limited by your situation, and you are not defined by how other people call you. So now he's empowering them from the inside out. To say, like, other people may call you slave, but God calls you son. And he's helping them understand what does it look like to live as a Christian, and that no matter how terrible your situation is, no matter how bad it may be, and you can span this out to your life, no matter what the sickness is like, no matter what the prognosis has said, no matter how stuck you may feel, no matter how bad things have gotten, no matter what, your situation, no matter how bad it may be, does not limit what God can do nor does it define who you are. And so this is what he's writing inside of that, which is empowering them with something supernatural to help them understand that even in this situation as a slave, I can still live freely as a Christian. And this is gonna allow me to do the will of God no matter what my circumstances are. Uh, a pastor and commenter, comment, commentator, commentator, I don't know, he writes commentaries, that's the easiest way to say it. Uh, John MacArthur, he says it this, this is a good summary of 1 Corinthians 7 here, that Paul's point is not to approve of slavery or to suggest that it is good. 
as the orator suggested, it is as good as a condition to live under as freedom. His point is that if a person is a slave, he is still able to live a Christian life. Which we've even seen from the great Christians that were modern slaves, who were still given a wonderful example of living as a Christian, even as they were navigating that awful, terrible situation. That's true that, and it's true in this situation as well. You're still able to live a Christian life. And we're gonna, we're gonna play that out a little bit more later about what that's like for your life that in every situation of your life, you are still enabled and empowered by God to live distinctly Christian. So you see that in 1 Corinthians 7. That's an example. How, why are they writing the way that they're writing about slavery? All right? You have to remember this is widespread everywhere, so Paul's helping them navigate their situations. When Paul's writing to slaves, I'm gonna give you some examples. We're just gonna write these out. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. Colossians 3, 22 through 25, 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2, 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, and the whole book of Philemon, as he's writing to slaves, he's focusing on the heart attitude and light of the gospel. He does not speak or approve of the, of the institution. He does not speak positively of the institution. He does not approve of its existence. But it's, it's in existence, right? Paul's not the president of the world. So he's saying, this is your situation, so in light of that, in light of it being in, within your situation, here's how you should live. And he tries to get at the responsibilities they have to live as a Christian and the freedom they have in Christ, even in the midst of their awful situations. You have to remember that Christians back then, and really true, true now, even though it's different in so many ways, are still a group of minorities with no political clout. And as you see in the history of the world, in the history of the church, as Christians get political clout, slavery begins to go away. So when Christians come into positions of worldly power, then the worldly dynamics begin to change. But as it were so, Christians had no political clout. There was not a revolution that could be had. Uh, therefore, he's trying to help them manage and deal with it and, and understand how to live as a Christian in it. What he's going to do is elevate the fact that even as a slave, you are a moral agent with moral responsibility, which is actually not a burden but a way to find freedom to say, even in the midst of involuntary conditions, I still have the ability to voluntarily live according to the will of God. So it's an elevation of the person, not a de-elevation of the person. So that's how Paul writes to slaves. A hard attitude in light of the gospel will be free if you can be free. Here's how you live in the situation that you're in, which is exactly how you would expect someone to write to someone in that situation without any political clout. To masters, so let me give you some examples. Ephesians 6, 9, Colossians 4, 1, Philemon 1, 16. Uh, he focuses on how masters should always treat their slaves fairly. He specifically often says, do not threaten them or be harsh with them. And he tells Philemon to treat Onesimus as a brother in Christ. He actually, if you read the book of Philemon, it's, it's really helpful to you in understanding Paul's perspective on slavery. And he uses his authority in Philemon's life to very passive-aggressively tell Philemon to let Onesimus go, but to do so of his own free will. So he doesn't tell him outright to do it because he, he wants Philemon to choose to do it himself. So this is how you view, this is how Paul kind of understands these things. As I said before, the last thing under this leg is that the political climate is so different and protest and rebellion are simply not possible. So those are the reasons why New Testament writers are helping people learn how to manage their current reality while also pursuing the ideal reality. May I remind you that this is also true of so many aspects of our life, that the Bible writes to us not to just take us out of every bad situation, but to help us manage and deal with it as unto the Lord while pursuing the best situation possible on earth while understanding that my real citizenship is in heaven and one day, not too far from now, I will have a perfect situation forever. That's how the Bible plays out all of your life. It doesn't just, whoo, 
It doesn't just whip you out. Uh, Psalm 23, you'd be the, even in the valley of the shadow of death, you're not with me. It doesn't say you will avoid the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say there is no shadow of death. No, the Bible's helping you manage your current reality while, I, while pursuing to the best of possibilities the ideal reality, right? You manage the fact that you're sick. You pursue the doctor's help to not be sick, but your real hope is in heaven. So there's layers. There's layers to these things, right? This is what we talked about last week. Okay, it's important about reading the Bible. You need to read it, the whole thing. You need to have a good understanding of it because otherwise people will get on here and they tweet. They tweet it, Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves obey your masters. And they say, Christians suck, you know? And the Bible's awful and God hates everyone. And they say, Ephesians 6, 5, look at that. Slaves obey your masters. God loves slavery. You say, okay, mister, have you, read, you haven't read the Bible. That's not what he's saying, all right? This is very important because you guys live, we all live on these little social media nuggets and often they're very misleading, especially with people who don't like Christianity and want to come up with reasons to hate it. All right, so that's the second thing. That's the second leg of the stool. The third leg of the stool is this. And this will be my final reason for you today on this particular topic. Modern slavery is incompatible with biblical realities. Modern slavery is incompatible with biblical realities. So not only is modern slavery not biblical slavery, not only are those two categories different, but modern slavery is absolutely incompatible with biblical realities. Let me play them out in front of you. Basically, what I'm saying here is that the whole teaching of the Bible makes modern slavery or any form of slavery incongruent with who God is and what God wants to see, particularly modern slavery and all its horrors. Why is that? So some theological realities that make modern slavery impossible to defend. The first one is the Imago Dei, which is called the image of God, which is from Genesis 126, which teaches us that God made all people in his image. The very first page of the Bible gives us the background for us to understand why it would not be okay to treat anyone else differently than how you would want to be treated. It would not be okay to devalue anyone else's humanity or existence. The reason why every human being has dignity, value, and worth is because God has made every human being in his image. Therefore, every human has inherent value, dignity, and worth that has been put on them by God. Therefore, as we believe these things, and as the Bible teaches us, then we cannot treat anyone else differently based off their race, based off their language, based off the country of origin, based off anything. Because we are all equal in the sense that we are made in the image of God. So to enslave someone and to treat them as less than equal goes against the very first page of the Bible. Now, what I also want to do for a second is flip this on its head. And for those of you who may... Um, have issues with Christianity or different things, I wanna ask you a question and I want you to think through something that's very important. If you do not have the image of God as the baseline for the, the value and worth of human beings, I wanna to present to you the fact that you have no rational justification for treating every human equally. You say, oh, I get mad at how God deals with slavery and slavery in the Bible. Well, let me tell you something. If you take God out of the equation, you're gonna be real upset to find out you have no reason to not enslave people. If people are not made in the image of God, just track with me. If everyone is a byproduct of a big cosmological accident and we have evolved from animals, then we have no inherent value, dignity, and worth if we are here by accident and simply just an evolved animal. Why would I treat you any differently? Based on what? Based on what? What rational justification can you give me 
that every human being has value and worth if we're simply an accident. You can't, but you have a feeling. You have a personal preference that that ought not to be the case, especially with yourself. And so because you have this intuition, which comes from God, that we ought to treat everyone equally, you begin to apply that in your life in so many ways. But if you do not have the biblical baseline that humans are made in the image of God, and if your choice is to take God out of the equation and believe that we're some big cosmological accident, then I'm, I'm here just to say to you, you may have a feeling, you may have a preference, but you do not have a rational justification to not believe in slavery. You don't. Because you don't have a rational reason to treat all humans with equality. You don't have a reason to do that. Why would I treat you differently than I treat my dog if we're all just here by accident? Why? You don't have a reason. But if I can say, well, no, God made you special. You are made in the image of God. Then that changes everything. Right? So the solution I want you to see, and this is true with all of life, is not to take God out. That just creates more problems. The solution is to be under the leadership of God and understand more what he's saying. So the Imago Dei. The second thing about the Bible that teaches us is the storyline of the Bible is God chooses an enslaved nation, and the whole story is about rescue and deliverance. I mean, that's the whole story. God chooses an enslaved nation. It becomes a metaphor for our slavery to sin. The whole point of the Bible is God rescues people out of slavery. And particularly, most importantly, God sends Jesus to die on a cross to pay for our sin, to rise from the dead, to rescue humanity out of our slavery to sin. That's the storyline of the Bible. God rescues people from slavery. That's the story. So how in the world can you then take the whole story of the Bible and flip it to teach people that they ought to enslave people based on the fact that God has it in the Bible? Of course not. The whole story of the Bible is rescue and deliverance. Then ought we not to live the same way, which is exactly what Jesus does. So that's the third thing. Jesus, when he comes in Luke 4, 16 through 19, he explains that he has come to set the captives free. The whole ministry of Jesus is about setting captives free. The gospel also does not allow slavery in any way whatsoever. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 basically flattens all things that we all stand equally both in judgment because of our sin and value because we're made in the image of God and with an opportunity to believe and trust in Jesus. What it says whether you're a slave or free, male or female, whatever your situation in life is, the gospel is accessible to you. The gospel teaches you that God loves you. The gospel teaches you that God loves you so much that he died on the cross. The, fam the famous verse, you know, maybe some of you just needed this this morning. That for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Right? If God loves you so much that he would die for you, then how can someone enslave you? This is obviously not what God would want. People do that because of sin. So the gospel teaches us that this is not good. And finally, the reality, the theological reality of heaven. Revelation 7, 9 teaches us that there will be people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation surrounding the throne worshiping God. It will be the most diverse experience of your entire life. So if the final reality of the world is that the people who trust in Jesus are before the throne and they literally represent every tongue, every tribe, every nation, if that's what God is after, then how in the world would that be congruent or fit into the storyline of the Bible or fit into the storyline of our lives that we should then enslave people who we will be before the throne with? That also doesn't make sense. So just want you to see that the theology the Bible presents to us, the image of God, the gospel, heaven, all these things, makes 
modern slavery absolutely unacceptable, according to the Bible. All right? Uh, a summary of this, uh, one of my favorite little books is called The Secular Creed. Once again, I only recommend little books. You should buy it and read it, okay? You can read it. It's called The Secular Creed. She says, the problem with Christians who supported segregation was not that they listened to the Bible too much, but too little. One of my favorite fun facts is this. Uh, has anybody seen the Slave Owner's Bible at the Bible Museum? Anybody seen that? What's unique about the Slave Owner's Bible is that it's all cut up. Why is it all cut up? This is why. You cannot hand someone a whole Bible and then expect them to come away from that with the conclusion that slavery is acceptable. That just does it all for me right there. I don't need anything else. You literally, you, you, if you want to convince somebody that the Bible approves of slavery, you have to cut it all up and turn it all around and make it say what you want it to say. If you just hand someone a full Bible and they read it with honesty, then they're going to come away from that absolutely repelled at the idea of slavery. And if you want to teach someone that God approves of slavery, you have to cut the whole Bible up. So obviously then, if you can't give someone a Bible and prove to them that slavery is acceptable, then the Bible doesn't teach that slavery is acceptable. My final fun fact is this. Christianity is not and has never been a white man's religion. This should be the most obvious fact in the world, but for some reason this needs to be clarified time and time again. Just to remind you, Christianity started in the Middle East. That's not where white people live, you know, or come from there. You say, well, okay. It started in the Middle East. The center of Christianity is Jesus, who's not white, Middle Eastern man. Christianity then moved from the Middle East to Northern Africa. The most famous, like, Christian saint in the early centuries, the third century, his name is Augustine. He's a black man from North Africa. Then it moved to Asia and then finally to Europe. Christianity now is growing the most in the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and Central and South America. Statistically, the most likely person to identify as a Christian in the whole world is a woman of color, statistically. So you put all that together and then you wanna say, oh, Christianity is a white man's religion. Well, you're just, you're just saying things to say them. That doesn't mean anything. It's the opposite of truth. It's the opposite of a white man's religion. What God wants to show us is it's the all people's religion. God wants everyone from every tribe and nation and color to be into heaven with him. So I want you to take all of that. Those are the three stools for you, the three legs to your stool. Modern slavery is incompatible with biblical realities. New Testament writers are helping people learn to manage their current reality while also pursuing the ideal reality. And finally, biblical slavery was simply different than modern slavery. And as I said before, there's so much more to be said on this topic, but I hope that at least gives you uh, some stability and a firm foundation upon which to think about these things. All right, now I want to apply this text straight to your life and your heart. Okay, everybody good? You still with me? Yes, all right, all right. It was a little class time, all right? Put our professor hats on, and now we're, now we're gonna jump in to, to some preaching. So how do I live under authority? How do I live under authority? This is important. Uh, yesterday I went and I took my kids to see the Spider-Verse movie, Across the Universe, you know? Who's seen the movie, Spider-Verse, Across the Universe, all right? Man, nobody raised their hand in that. Like, you guys don't see movies? Is this not, you don't have kids? I thought this was a very popular movie. Apparently not. Okay, so we took my kids to go see it, and uh, they had a lot of fun. They loved it. I don't want to ruin the movie for you, so I'm not going to do too much, all right? But 
part of the, the theme under, underlying a lot of the movie is Miles Morales and his desire, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad, to buck against authority, you know, and to find his freedom outside of the authority, whether it's his parents or whether it's all the people in the Spider-Verse or whatever. It all comes to this moment, right, where if he makes a particular decision, bad things are going to happen for a lot of people, but uh, something good will happen for him and his family. And he comes to this conclusion where he's wrestling with this guy or whatever. Once again, I'm trying not to spoil it. But he says this phrase. He says, I says something like, I'm tired of doing what everyone else has told me to do. He says, nah, I'm going to do my own thing. And that's like this heroic moment in the movie. You know, the, the, the music goes, oh, and everybody's, yeah. And he's going to do his, nah, I'm going to do my own thing, right? And then he releases and he goes and does this, whatever. I'm going to do my own thing. And I, I think I was thinking and listening to that, just thinking how much that is the mantra of our age. And the idea, I want you to understand this because you're breathing this every day in the world around you. The idea underneath that is that real freedom comes when I don't have restrictions. The, the, the really underlying idea is that authority is bad and that I ought not and need not listen to anyone else. And that when I live my truth or that when I live my life and do my own thing, then that will be what is best. And anything that keeps me from doing my own thing is bad. Even if it's the common good of many people, even if it's the wisdom of authority structures in our life, like parents, anybody or thing that keeps me from doing my thing, that keeps me from expressing myself, that keeps me from the path that I want to live in front of me is bad. And when I break free from that, I become the hero. Right, so this is what, this is what, I would call the underlying message of a movie like that. And it's a reason, it might not even be on purpose, but the reason is this because of how we think in the world, how the world thinks. So this is happening all around you, and this is obviously true within us as well. We live with the mistaken assumption that freedom comes without restrictions, and that when I am released from under authority, I can be free to be me. We come with the underlying assumption that boundaries are bad, that the common good of all people does not matter as much as the good of my own life and my family, and that authority structures are hindrances to the well-being of my personal freedom. This is how the world thinks around us, and we come to believe the same thing. What I want to show you today is how the Bible gives a totally different perspective on authority and how it's actually much more freeing than the freedom you think you'll find when you say, I'm going to do my own thing. And let me show you why that's the case. But the first thing we have to see in light of this, how to live under authority, is that we must remember that we all have to live under God's authority. So this is what he does here. This is what Paul does at the end. So I'm going to go to the end, and I'm going to bring it back to the beginning here. When he says, remember that both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. So the umbrella for living under authority is that we all understand then that ultimately we all live under God's authority. That God's authority is ultimate. That God's authority cannot be wiggled out from. That God's authority cannot be run away from. That God's authority is ultimate. There is no authority higher than God's. And both your boss and my boss, their master and their master, your father, he's in heaven. He rules over all things. That's ne- that is a necessary understanding for living under earthly authority because it has implications for both sides. Let me show you. So therefore, if we all must submit to God's authority or live under God's authority, the one who has earthly authority should lead as one under heavenly authority. 
So if it's true that God's the ultimate authority, then if you have earthly authority, you do not live and lead as one who is ultimate, but one who is still under authority. Therefore, nobody who has earthly authority should live as if they have all authority. They should live as if they're one under authority because they are. But then you flip it and you talk to the person who's under earthly authority and you say, well, the one that is under earthly authority is now free in that situation to serve as one under heavenly authority. Because, as we've talked about the last several weeks, how important it is, how freeing it is to do everything unto the Lord. Because even though your earthly authority may not be worthy or deserving of obedience, Jesus always is. So if I'm acting as unto him, and if I obey earthly authority as unto my heavenly Father, who's always worthy of my obedience, then I'm free to obey even when I don't feel like it. I'm also free to serve when I don't feel like it or when you don't deserve it. Why? Well, because I'm not ultimately serving you but I'm ultimately serving God, who is always worthy of my service and worthy of my love. Therefore, it does both sides a good service. It teaches the one who has authority that they really don't, and they should live as one under authority. And then it frees up those who live under authority to live so as unto the Lord, even in the midst of difficult situations. The Christianity and the gospel here provides a very unique resource and perspective on this in our life that helps both sides live well. Now, I also want to help you understand that as you live under God's authority, the main issue we struggle with as humans is we want to reject God's authority. We don't like his rules. We'd rather do things our own way. But I want to remind you that the great benefit of God's authority is that he is perfect in love, perfect in justice, and perfect in strength. Therefore, when we live under God's authority, we find ourselves actually the most free. You could say it like this. We are most free when we live under God's authority because he's perfect in love, which you are not, which I am not. Perfect in justice, which you are not, and I am not, and perfect in strength, which you are not, and I am not. Therefore, he can apply more love, justice, and strength to our lives than we can. So to live under his authority positions myself to walk in those things. To try to walk out of his authority rejects the perfect love, strength, and justice of God. I'll give you an example, an easy example. Uh, if one of my kids were running away from home, let's say like the little ones, you know, Katie, she's four. She's the cutest little thing ever. Imagine she got upset one day and ran out and just started running away. And her, 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 the thing she yelled was, I'm free. And she's just running. I'm free. I'm free. Would anybody look at that, that little girl or take any of them, six, seven years old, they just, they just leave. They say, I'm tired of being under your authority. I'm out of here. I'm free. And they leave. Would you look at them and say, oh, yeah, you're free. Go. You know what they're free to be? Free to be homeless. Free to be hungry. Free to get kidnapped. That's, what the, that's the freedom they're going to find. They're free to destroy their lives. Free to suffer. Yeah, sure. You're free, and it's going to be horrible for you. you. So you wouldn't look at a little kid and say, oh, yeah, that kid's free when they're out of the protection of good, loving parents. No, what would you say? A child actually lives and finds the most freedom within the environment of the authority of good and loving parents. Because they can do things for the kid that the kid cannot do for themselves. And I want you to apply that same picture to you and to me. When we reject God's authority, we're just like little six-year-olds running out of the house saying, I'm free. I'm going to do things my own way. Yeah, you're free. Free to be miserable. Free to be depressed. Free to be hopeless. Certainly free to go to hell and pay for your own sins if that's what you'd prefer. You're free to destroy your life. Yeah. Would you call that freedom? You call that freedom? Free to make bad decisions? 
free to have no one to help you? I wouldn't call that freedom. Neither would you. So when the Bible gives us this picture of living under God's authority, it is the absolute blessing of our life. And it is within the authority of God that we actually find the most freedom of our life. Right? It's like my kids are free to learn how to swim in the deep end when I'm there. Why? Well, they're free because if they fail, I will save them. If, they were, if I was not there, my child would not be free to jump into the deep end. Why? They can't swim good enough yet. But when I'm there, they're free. They have more freedom, not less, by my presence. And I want you to understand the same is true with God. You have more freedom, not less, within the presence of God. And more freedom, not less, under the authority of God. And when you try to walk out of the authority of God, you simply enslave yourself to something else. Someone else's approval, to your bank account, to a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Wherever you go to try to get out from the authority of God, you place yourself under the authority of something else. Your own desires. And you end up a slave. The Bible wants to teach us that God's authority is not only right and true and a necessary fact in the universe, but also good for us. So we all have to live under God's authority. The second thing we have to understand is that we recognize that in all situations, you still have a responsibility. So what Paul's doing is actually very helpful and unique to the Christian perspective on life. You must recognize that in all situations, you still have a responsibility. So while Paul sympathizes with the plight of a slave, while Paul would sympathize with the difficulties of your life, he doesn't make excuses for bad behavior. Meaning that he can sympathize with someone in a bad situation, but not give excuses for bad behavior. Meaning that he still has the authority then to correct someone even in a, in a, in a victim situation. So this is actually very good for them and good for all of us. So Paul, he's basically making the case that within this involuntary position, you still have voluntary choices to make. And you still have a moral responsibility on your life. A simple way to say it is a bad situation does not make you free for bad actions. It doesn't justify bad actions. Another way to say this is that being in a situation of injustice does not allow you to also act with injustice. So he's talking to the slaves and he's gonna tell them to have a good attitude why? You, this would make sense in your life. You're not free to gossip because your boss is bad. Your boss being terrible doesn't give you freedom now to gossip. But we use that as an excuse. Well, he's so bad, I have to commiserate with someone, you know? How are we gonna make it in here if we don't at least shoot at him, you know? And say, this is awful. I'm just saying a few things. He's awful, you know? We begin to excuse things because this situation's not just. This situation's unfair. My boss is not good. Therefore, I will speak ill of him. And the gospel's gonna come in and say, no, 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 no. Paul's gonna come in and say, no, no, no. Even if your boss is bad, that does not allow you the freedom to gossip. Even if your work environment is bad, that doesn't allow you the freedom to be lazy. Even if you hate your job, that doesn't allow you to give half effort at it. This is what he's coming in, he's saying, I'm sorry, you, you hate your situation. And even Paul would say, I hope you can find a better one. And if you can, go for it. But while you are there, you must live fully as a Christian while you're there. And you are not excused to act wrongly because your situation is wrong. And I think this is often so the temptation in our life because our situation's bad, because our boss is bad, because our health is bad, because the people around us betray us, so on and so forth. You betrayed me, so I'll betray you, you know? That's kind of how we think. And the Bible wants to flip that on its head and give you the, the possibility to not do that. Now, this is, we, obviously as a Christians, we are Christ followers. Isn't this absolutely the way of Jesus? 
Someone who voluntarily laid his life down. Someone who voluntarily endured people reviling him. Someone who voluntarily did something he did not have to do simply out of love for the benefit of other people. Someone who voluntarily was looked down upon. Someone who was voluntarily mocked. Someone who did not return evil for evil but gave mercy and grace to those who were ridiculing him. Isn't this the way of Jesus that if he voluntarily laid his life down even for you and for me, the Bible says, while we were still sinners, while we hated him, while we mocked him, while we rejected him, even in that situation, he lays down his life for us. This is the gospel. So to live as a follower of Christ then necessitates that we do the same for others. If we follow a savior who voluntarily laid down his life unjustly to the hands of unjust people for the sake of love, then ought we not live the same kind of life to voluntarily lay our lives down even in bad situations for the sake of love? Everything changes when you begin to follow the way of Jesus. Jesus is our example. And this is the truth for your life, and maybe some of you, this is the simple truth you have to receive today, that Jesus laid down his life for you, and that he wants to invite you into his kingdom and his family and to the freedom of being his child. He wants to save you from hell and give you an eternity in heaven simply by you believing and trusting in what he's done for you. All right, in light of our responsibility, we're gonna walk through this passage real quick. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna bullet, bullet them for you. We see five different ways we're supposed to live under authority. You call them attitudes, dispositions. So if I have a responsibility to still, I have a moral obligation to live a certain way, even in a bad situation, then what am I supposed to do? What does God expect of me? Uh, the first one is respectfully. It says here, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So I have to do it respectfully. Disrespect, even in a bad situation, is never a characteristic of the kingdom of God. I have to do it respectfully, which means I must take it seriously. It means I must live with a proper understanding of my position before God. I must act respectfully. The second way I must live under authority is with sincerity. Verse five says, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now he's gonna do this several times. He's gonna connect the way you ought to behave with other humans with your relationship with God. And your relationship with God is so vital to the ability you're going to have to do the right thing with other people. Because like we saw before, as I serve Christ, I am now motivated to serve others. With a sincere heart, as you would Christ. I saw a good definition of sincere, as that innocent of any improper motivation. Innocent of improper motivation. Which means I'm not serving out of selfish ambition, which means I'm not serving out of personal gain or greed which means I'm not serving or doing things to tear others down. I'm not, not tearing people down to build myself up. I have a sincere heart. I say, how in the world am I supposed to do that in a bad situation? How in the world am I supposed to have a sincere heart with a bad boss? Here's the key, right? You spend too much time trying to will up what you think should be true about your heart towards someone as opposed to getting with Jesus, thinking about how you would serve him, letting his service to you radically transform your heart. And as I look to Jesus and how he has loved me and died for me and been so patient with me and has given me heaven and is a wonderful, loving father and savior to me, my heart becomes pure and full of a sincere desire to serve him. And then I take that sincerity that has been gifted to me by the presence of God and now 
now I apply it to my relationships with other people. You cannot just will up a sincere heart because it's the right thing to do. You cannot just make yourself be better. No, 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 no. That's why your behavior with other people is radically connected to your relationship with God. And as I evaluate, meditate on as Christ has been with me and as I would want to treat Jesus, then my heart begins to change. And I begin to take that changed heart into my human relationships with other people. So that's sincerity. The third thing is integrity. He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. So with integrity, integrity basically means you're the same when people are watching as when you're not watching, which means in this situation, you would work as hard when the boss is not watching as you do when he is watching, which means that you would apply the same work ethic in situations where people aren't seeing it and can't reward you for it as in situations when people do see it and can reward you for it. It means you're the same. You're the same in private. You're the same in public. You're the same with the coworkers. You're the same with the boss. You're the same everywhere you go. You don't do things for eye service so that other people may see you, but you do things always understanding the reality that I may not be working in front of my boss, but I am always working in front of God. My boss may not be present. My parents may not be present. The authority structures in my life may not be present, but God is always present. Therefore, I live as one always working within his presence. And since God is always present, I also live as one who is working unto him. So when the boss is not there, I'm not working for the boss, I'm working for Jesus. And Jesus is present, and so I'm serving Jesus in the role that he's given me on this earth. I must live with integrity. I remember back when I used to do landscaping. Landscaping is like notorious for people working half a day, you know? You find the shade, you chill out. I once did landscaping at Liberty University when I was in college, which is a big campus, and man, every, every person, myself included, God forgive me, had our hiding spots. We knew where the boss was gonna be when. We knew how to look busy when he showed up, you know? I used to, I don't know how many of you have been waiters, but if you have nothing to do, you just walk around fast, right? I don't know how many of you can relate to this, right? You just look busy. You're just like, I'm actually not gonna go do anything, but I'm gonna walk around fast, and it's gonna look like I'm being very productive, you know? Uh, You say, you're only serving so that other people can see, and what you're doing is a distraction from the fact that you're not working. Well, that's obviously an example of what is unacceptable, that we must live with integrity, give a full effort everywhere we go, and be the same when the boss is watching as when he's not. The fourth one is wholeheartedly. It says in verse six, doing the will of God from the heart. Once again, what are you doing? Are you doing the will of the boss? Are you doing the will of the master? Are you doing the will of your parents? Sort of, but ultimately, what are you doing? You're doing the will of God. Now, how much easier is it to do the will of God with a whole heart than the will of someone else? This is what he's trying to get at. When you do the will of God, you now have capacity to do it with a whole heart because you want to do it for God. And once by faith you believe that God's will is always best, then I can live under the will of others with a full heart because I'm living unto the will of God. Wholeheartedly, not begrudgingly, but as a willing service unto the Lord. One of my favorite books I used to read to my kids a lot is called Halfway Herbert. And it's about little Herbert who only does things halfway. He brushes, his, uh, brushes half his teeth. He eats half his hamburger. He does half his homework. He does everything halfway, halfway. And obviously the, the, the Christian twist on this is that when the Holy Spirit comes, he empowers us to do everything with a full heart. But this is the reality in front of us that the Bible expects us and God expects us to give everything to everything that we do. We have to go into work 
with a full heart. We have to live in situations we don't like with a full heart. Once again, you cannot do this on your own, but you can by the power and presence of God. Wholeheartedly, are you going to work with a whole heart? Are you serving your family with a whole heart? Are you doing your due diligence every day with a whole heart? Number five, happily. It says in verse seven, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. A good will, a good attitude is kind of the summary. This is like the summary bow on it. It's basically like, in everything, just have a good attitude. In everything you do, in everything you do. Serving, working, parenting, living, helping, da-da-da-da. Dealing with people you like, dealing with people you don't like, and everything you need to have a good attitude. You do it happily. So those are the characteristics it gives us, God gives us for living under authority. He speaks real quickly to the masters, and he's basically telling people how to live under authority and then how to live with authority. We've talked about this the last couple weeks with husbands with authority in the home, fathers with authority in the house, parents, all these different things. Uh, The summary of all of this always, from the Bible's perspective, is that those in authority should use their power to serve, not to dominate. That's just the simple understanding of God's authority structures on the earth. If you have authority, and you've been given that authority by God, you should use your power to serve, not to dominate. You should use your power to serve your kids, not to dominate them. To serve your spouse, not to dominate them. To serve your employees, not to dominate them. To serve those under your charge, not to dominate them. If you have power and have been given it, like Jesus, who the word says came to serve and not be served, So we also live the same way. If you have power, use it not to dominate, but to serve. And he's telling specifically to the masters, the way you do this is, one of the ways is to stop your threatening, to stop being harsh, even as we talked about last week, to pursue gentleness and love. A simple way for you, maybe you leaders or bosses in the room, is that you ought to spend more effort finding positive ways to motivate behavior than negative ones. Just a simple, practical thing, if you're a leader or or of some sort, you have authority in people's lives in some way. You need to work to find positive ways to motivate behavior instead of negative ones. Okay, the final thing we see here is why should I live like this? As we talked about before, you know, the Bible presents to us the best way is to live under the authority of God, and as we live under the authority of people, we're living under the authority of God, but if that's not sufficient for you, God is so kind to us and he gives us good reasons. Verse eight says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. So this is the final thing about living under authority is that you need to rejoice in the reward that is coming so surely. So remember that we all must live under God's authority. Recognize that in all situations you still have a responsibility and rejoice in the reward that is coming so surely. The Bible makes you a promise that every single good thing done will be taken into account and not forgotten by God. A great commentary I was reading sums it up like this. Paul is trying to give believing slaves an eschatological, which is an end times perspective on their present condition. Now this is gonna apply to all of you. You know, mothers on a hard day, people who don't like the work you're doing, whatever. Although they may face arduous days of difficult work and be asked to do thankless tasks that no one would ever want to do, the Lord notices all they do and they can be assured of a reward. That's why the Bible says here, knowing that. This is how you need to walk into your life, walk into your house, walk into your work, dealing with your authority structures in your life, knowing that. Knowing that every return of good for evil will be rewarded by God. Knowing that every time you hold your mouth and do not vent your anger, this will be rewarded by God. Knowing that every time you speak well of those who speak ill of you, this will be rewarded by God. Knowing that every time you gave full heart and full effort when you were not feeling like it, 
this will be rewarded by God. Knowing that when you serve those who did not deserve it and were not worthy of your service, this will be rewarded by God. Knowing that every time you extended mercy and grace and patience and love to people, even people that were not treating you right, this will be rewarded by God. And so you walk into every situation knowing that God has attached an eternal reward to every good thing you do, even in the midst of bad situations. This is the beauty of the gospel, that you cannot do good things to earn your salvation, that Jesus has done a good thing and has set you and I free from slavery to sin through his life, death, and resurrection, and we get into heaven by the sheer grace of God. But now, in light of our life, God is not only allowing us entrance into heaven, but he is attaching eternal rewards to every little good thing you do. So a group of people like you and me, who are slaves to sin and separated from God, who deserve hell and God's wrath, not only get freedom from sin, get a free, re-resurrected body, get Jesus' forgiveness of our sins, we get heaven, but we get to live a life with the motivation that every good thing we do is seen by God and will be rewarded by God. And if that isn't sufficient to motivate you to manage the life you're in, to give full effort to everything God has put in front of you, I do not know what else will be. This is the gospel, that God has set you free so you're free to live the way that you ought to live and you're free to enjoy the rewards God has bought for you by his blood for all of eternity. One day, one day, one day, you will eternally enjoy every decision that you made today to follow Jesus and do things his way. Remember, God's authority is best and God has the love the ability to bring justice and the strength required to make sure that the promises that he's made to you come to pass 100%. Let's pray and respond to the Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the good news of the gospel that though we were slaves to sin, we have freedom in Jesus Christ. I pray now that you would teach us, Lord, how to live in all situations, that you would empower us, Lord, especially those who may really be struggling with where they're working or with authority structures in their life or just the day-to-day thankless task or just pray that you would provide supernatural encouragement. I also pray that you would provide conviction, Lord. There are no excuses uh, for that kind of behavior. Would you convict us and would you allow us to live the life you've called us to live? And so what you do in the room by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what only you can do now, to convict and to encourage, to guide us and to lead us. And help us to all happily, every day, submit to your authority in our life because you know what's best. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand? There'll be a prayer team down front.